0: And I'm Amy, and you are listening to the Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy's like a golden retriever, and I am the grumpy cat of this duo, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life. Each week, we
1: do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are.
0: This is the time of year when lots and lots of people travel, so it makes sense to have a travel memoirist on our show. Kate Wickers is a British writer who has spent 25 years or so writing about her extensive travel experiences and publishing in magazines and newspapers all over the world. When COVID hit, she decided to turn her many travels with her husband and three sons into a collection of essays about what travel has meant to their family and the lessons they've learned from the experiences travel has given them.
1: Her memoir, Shape of a Boy, offers a collection of really great stories that will make any parent who has traveled with children go down their own memory lane to remember both the highs and the lows of travel when kids are involved. And we're not the only ones who think her memoir is pretty awesome. National Geographic Traveler listed it as one of the nine best travel books of 2022. But first, Carrie, you are back from your vacation how was it? You it went was
0: to Lake Erie. We stayed on Kelly's Island in Ohio. It was very nice, small, quiet, lovely island. We saw Marblehead Lighthouse. I'm a big fan of lighthouses, so we got to see that. And and I realized talking about travel and thinking about travel, I have traveled a crap ton since December. I don't know, like it hadn't really occurred to me, but you know in in December, my family went out to Nevada and California, and then my daughter and I went to Ecuador and the Galapagos, and then we went to Tennessee and we just went to Ohio and I was like, wow, you know we've we've done a lot of traveling in the last six months. So that's all well and good. The sad thing is that now we're not going to travel anywhere for like a year or more. We've got to save up again and save up for more traveling so. That's a little sad, but, you know, hopefully these trips will sustain us for a little while.
1: Well, I think because of COVID and not being able to travel for a long time, everybody just wants to go somewhere, do all the traveling that you didn't get to do before. So, yeah, I have to tell you, though, I am almost done. I'm getting very close to finishing the book that I am reading in your behest about (laughs) Lake Erie and I am enjoying it. It's a little bit of a gothic thriller type book set on an island in the middle of the Great Lakes and you have to take a ferry over there and it's very small. I know that you weren't interested but I'm I'm finding it quite enjoyable.
0: Well good. Good. Very good. I'm I'm glad that my trip could induce you to get sidetracked on a <laughs> on another book. So uh, yeah, I didn't read any of the books that I said that I was <laughs>
1: uh, going to read while we were taking just a little bit of a break. You are the, you know, what
0: squirrel? you know, you're (laughs) like, what? Oh, wait, I'll read that instead. You know? Well,
1: I'm the ultimate mood reader. (laughs) Really?
0: (laughs) Even though technically it wasn't your vacation or your mood, but you're like, well, I can, I can wear this mood for a while. I can do this. That's right. So, So
1: what was your favorite thing about Kelly's Island? Well,
0: for one thing, my family has, we decided, I don't know, when we went up to Michigan, probably six years ago that we wanted to see the Great Lakes. So this takes care of four of the five. We still need to see Lake Ontario. So I just like seeing Lake Erie. I rode on a ferry and Unlike the ferry that I took from San Cristobal to Santa Cruz in the Galapagos, I did not throw up all over myself on this ferry that took us from Marblehead to Kelly's Island. So it can be done, but this was a 20 minute cruise on uh, a big boat, cars and, and, you know, everything on it. So it can be done. I just can't do those smaller ferries on the Pacific. It's a small enough island that you can bike pretty much anywhere you want to go on the island. We did some trail hikes. They have this really nice North Pond hike that takes you through sort of like swamps and then plops you out on the beach, the north end of the island. So we enjoyed that. And then in Port Clinton, we did, it's called African Safari. It's like a small zoo, but they have this one part where you can drive through and these animals will come up to your car and eat out of cups from your hands. And and they do not have any problem sticking their entire (laughs) heads and horns inside your car to get to the food. So um, the kids really enjoyed that. And that was fun to watch. So So. did you get any like huge tongues licking you? Oh, well, no, no. You you know, you're not supposed to touch them there and you're not supposed to feed them out of your hands. So we did not touch them. We just put the cups sort of up to their mouths. But there was a considerable amount of slobber on the outside of the windows. So, you know, right where the window raises from the door, yeah, there was there was a lot of slobber, but it was totally worth it. Maybe you can post some of the video of of my kids feeding these big. I don't know what they were like. There were llamas, there were deer, there were one looked like a yak. I don't know, but some of them had these big, big, big horns, uh, and those horns were inside my minivan. And you weren't worried about being gored by the horns? No, 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 no. Do they have like little
1: marshmallows on the end of them? No, from- no.
0: Okay, so- no and it, it's entirely possible that one of them might have gently rubbed their horn down the side of my car. But <laughs> but that's okay because I, I don't care about what my car looks like. So. Well,
1: very good. Well, it sounds very uh, relaxing and quaint And I just have to ask you, were there any like gothic houses near a cliff that you could jump off of? Mm, No,
0: not that I found. Uh, No, no. Maybe that's a different island.
1: Yeah, it's the island I'm reading about in the book right now. Okay, no, nothing like that all right your kids might have been licking the not licking (laughs) my kids weren't licking anything (laughs) but these animals were licking your car and we're going to talk with kate wickers and in her book they had some pretty interesting experiences with wild animals all over the globe as well so are you ready to talk to kate
0: i would love to talk to kate Kate Wickers. Thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, thank you very much for asking me.
0: So Kate, you have a job
2: that I have
1: always imagined to be like my dream job. You have been a travel writer for 25 years. You get to travel all over the world. And that just sounds like a dream come true. But you have published a new book called Shape of a Boy. What made you decide to do that right now?
2: Well, I have to say the book is, it's nothing I've had published before, but it is based on many of the trips I took when I was working, uh, with which when I had the children in in tow. Um, Why did I decide to do it now? Well, that was down to a pandemic. (laughs) I was at home and although I still was working quite a lot, so the last long haul trip I'd taken was to Cuba with the boys, and actually that had given me so much material to write so many lovely features, eleven in total oh, actually wow. from that trip. So I was still doing some travel writing, I was doing some editing um, I was still doing some journalism, but I did have some more time in my hands because i wasn 't going anywhere and um, The boys were all home too from well Ben had just had his A levels cancelled. Freddie was homeschooling and Josh was home from university. And, you know, we often sit around and talk about our travels. It's one of our favorite things to do. And, you know, we all shout out whatever version we have of um, events and often end up really laughing. And, you know, it was during one of these sort of lunchtime discussions, I thought, oh, I'm gonna dig out all my old journals. Now I've kept journals for, you know, as long as I've been traveling. And as I began to read them again, I thought, oh gosh, there might be a book here. The boys have learned so much over the years. And that's when the idea came to me for this book. And I already had an agent because I'd written a novel and he was representing me for that. That was just about to go out on submission. And I contacted him and I said, I've had this other idea for a nonfiction book. And he said, well, have you ever written a nonfiction book proposal, Kate? And I said, no, (laughs) but I can learn. (laughs) I've got the time. So I did that and put together a nonfiction book proposal, which I don't know if you know, but it's uh, a few sample chapters and then a synopsis of the book with a chapter breakdown and sent it to him. And he loved it. And he said, well, let's put your novel on pause and let's see if this sells and it did really quickly oh couldn't believe it and what was so wonderful about that was of course i had an offer from a publishers and they give you an advance to write the book and of course then i could sit and write the book knowing that it was already sold and you know i it was, it was wonderful it was a fantastic project And it just flowed. I loved writing it. It brought back so many happy memories. And it just felt like a gift at that time. You know, I wasn't going anywhere. Life seemed quite bleak, you know, (laughs) on the planet. And I was able to relive all these years of traveling with the boys through my book. And, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity.
0: When you think about a, a travel memoir, what do you think makes one compelling and something that people want to read?
2: Well, I think any writer, if they're thinking of doing something like this, has to be honest. I set out to write it not as a parenting manual, as a real warts and all. This is who we are as a family. We're not perfect. You know, we make lots of mistakes and I make lots of mistakes as a mother. And, you know, often those mistakes are funny and I felt that I just wanted to write something very honest. And those are the kind of books that I like. You know, the writers I admire are people who don't take themselves too seriously, you know, and who aren't worried about other people judging them. I hope that honesty comes across in my book. I, I wanted it to be a, a really true picture of who we are as people and how we are within our family.
1: Well, in this book with each chapter is about a different destination that you went to with your family, and it gives the ages of your boys as you go. And the very first chapter is before any of your children were born. It was when you were pregnant with your oldest child, uh, and it goes up to the trip to Cuba that you refer to So I'm, I'm kind of interested about these journals, how detailed were your journals to be able to remember back to some of those older trips, because I feel like my mind must be like a sieve because I can only remember either the the best part of the trip, or like the worst part of the trip, all the stuff in the middle is kind of like a blur. <laughs> so I'm curious <laughs> yeah. about your journals.
2: So, my journals started long before I had children. When Neil and I first went backpacking, you know, when we were in our 20s, I always kept journals. I felt it was something that when you were traveling for an extended period of time, it was good to have a focus during the day where you stopped and reflected on what you were doing. And, you know, some days it felt like a bit like a chore. You know, I was having a bit of fun and it was like, oh, I've got to write my journal now. I don't really <laughs> want to you know it's my like <laughs> housekeeping. Um, but I'm so glad I did that. And I think it kept me kind of focused and grounded and really thinking about how I traveled. And thank goodness I did, because now I have these very detailed stories. They weren't notes, they were more than that. It was like a it was like a diary. And I've always kept a diary, you know, through my teenage years. A couple I threw away. because so I thought, oh, my God, if anybody finds these, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I ever want anyone reading these. But that was a long time ago. Now I regret it. But no, my traveling diaries uh, go back a long, long way. And they are very detailed.
0: So I'm curious, you know, in the book, you talk about this a little bit about how your own childhood, you had some memorable travel experiences. So did you keep a journal even then when you were a kid that you wrote well, about I- some of these things? Not
2: when I was really young. I mean, I, I've always written. You know, I, w- I had a big imagination when I was young and was always writing short stories and making up stories and would often put them into play form and perform them for my poor family. You know, as one of those kids. But no, the, the journals began when when I started travelling. Really, uh, the teenage diaries, of course, were you know all about who I fancied at school. <laughs> But the, the ones about travelling began when started travelling seriously went to interesting places. I think I might have given you the wrong impression about my family and how adventurous they were. <laughs> um, so most of our holidays consisted of camping you know, in Cornwall or caravanning in the Lake District. The one that I detail in the book when we go on a road trip through France and Switzerland was actually very unusual. Uh, It's the one that really sticks out in my mind, though, of course, because it was so unusual. But my parents weren't particularly adventurous.
0: You know, it's all relative because my parents were not adventurous at all. So... Even camping, you know, that sounded pretty adventurous because we were just staying in a hotel that had a pool. So, you know, when my right. my dad was a manager, and so he had his sort of like service area, and so that was our vacation. Mom just wanted yeah. to get out of the house and not cook for a couple <laughs> days. And I think too, you know, here in the states, the the distance it would take me to get to Ohio, somebody in Europe could be three countries away. It, it's just so different for that reason, just <laughs> on you pool. know geography alone. So yes you talked about that the Switzerland and I, I think there was a, a situation with a cow or a, a bull. What? Well,
2: no, the situation was in a on a cattle farm, I think. You know, at that time you took enough you took all the money that you thought you'd need for the trip. You know, there weren't cash points and so, you know, my mum and dad would have had their French and Swiss francs, I guess. So they'd run out of money on the last day. And we slept in the car in a field on this farm. And I think, you know, literally my dad had just driven off the road, opened the gate, and we'd just sort of, you know, rolled up into this field, <laughs> thinking that no one would see us. And we woke up in the morning. I think I must have been about four at the time. And we woke up to the sight of a very angry French farmer <laughs> and a big double-barrel shotgun pointed at my dad. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, what the hell are you doing on my farm? <laughs> and, you know, of course, I, I remember that because it's slightly bonkers, really, the thought of doing that now. But other trips we did, we we went to Spain on holiday uh, when I was a bit older. We, you know, we took package holidays to, to Spain when those first became really popular. That was very exciting. You know, seeing palm trees for the first time. And uh, I remember how thrilling that was. But apart from that, I mean, we really holidayed in the UK a lot. Mm.
0: So your memoir Shape of a Boy is is a super quick read. I finished it in a day and it brought back so many memories of traveling with my own three children. And I remember, you know, especially in the chapters where you, you talk about your sons being young, you know, in that baby toddler stage and I remember it, it felt like I was having to carry everything in the house with me, you know, even to go to the corner store for milk. And so, you know, when we would take longer trips, vacations, it felt even worse. So, what was your experience of traveling with babies like because it sounded at least from my perspective it you weren't taking like all the carriers and the widgets and all the you know things that it seemed like I had to travel with with my kids did you figure out a way to to not do that
2: well the first trip i took with josh when he was 3 months old was to Mallorca. and i think i was like any new mom in that the bag i had was like something an electrician would carry it was just this- <laughs> I mean, I can picture it now, this huge, great blue thing. And it had come with a pram I'd bought. So I felt like I had to use it, you know. And, you know, I packed lots of things I didn't need. The ironic thing about that trip was we got to the airport at Gatwick. And we were giddy on the chance of this holiday with, you know, our first holiday with Josh. And we decided we'd buy two duty-free bottles of champagne which came with a an enormous free teddy bear. It was bigger than Josh. It was huge, this thing. <laughs> and we arrived in Mallorca and all our luggage had gone missing. Oh, no. So we got to the hotel clutching Josh, two bottles of champagne and this enormous bear, <laughs> like a couple of rock star parents. You know, <laughs> I just remember the guy looking at me like, what the hell? I've got a baby <laughs> <Yeah>. in champagne. <laughs> But our luggage did come, of course. But thank God for that electrician's bag I had with me, because in it I had, you know, a, a few spare things for Josh. Um, I think after that, pretty quickly, I scaled things down. And by the time Freddie, you know, my third son came along, I was down to real compact packing and I've always tried to buy things in the destination so visiting local markets buying things like you know flip-flops and t-shirts and shorts and things like that from local markets I've always really enjoyed because it it brings you into contact with local people supports the local economy and it means you don't have to pack as much to go away babies are different I've always taken enough nappies to see me through a trip although I do remember doing things like changing Freddie's nappy on the back of a tuk <laughs> and uh you know because I didn't have a nappy changing mat with me and so I've improvised I've improvised very well and yeah I'm I'm, I'm a good minimalist packer I would say even with kids
1: So, when we say that you took your children to interesting places, we really mean it. For example, you traveled with your preschooler and toddler to Thailand, which your three year old thought was toy land. And so, therefore, he was a little disappointed when you all got there and didn't see, you know, a big toy store laid out in front of him. So, were most of these travels related to your writing work or were some of them just for fun?
2: Oh, a lot of them were for fun. I mean, it's a mixture, really, because Back then, you know, I did do some press trips, of course, and I was invited to write about places. But we've always, on the whole, really, when it's been big family trips... I have set up the trips myself. Sometimes I had commissions to write before going and often I wrote in retrospect once back. I think you know that still happens today. You know, I didn't go to Cuba with 11 commissions. I went with a few and then other people commissioned when I was back. That's that's always been the way, but they've always been fun occasionally when I'm away I meet with marketing people or PR people and there's a little bit of that going on and sometimes hotels will plan things for us that they want me to experience because they want me to write about it but most of the time we march to the beat of our own drum and we decide what we're doing and I organize it all the writing you know I I love writing so that was never a big task for me anyway. But no, the first and foremost, our trips have always been about fun and about spending time together as a family.
0: Your memoir is about life lessons that your sons learned from the extensive travel that your family did. So for example, one of the chapters in the book, you talk about how when you went to Cambodia, your tour guide is missing a limb. And, and as so many people do as a result of landmines, and that helped your child get real life lessons in empathy and not being scared of people who look different. So I'm curious, was it difficult for you to narrow down some of the life lessons when you began sort of putting your memoir in order? And, and were there any that you had to cut out?
2: I think for a lot of them, it was quite obvious. You know, I mean, even before I had the idea of this book, I remember, for example, in Sri Lanka, we come across a wild elephant traveling in our minibus with our guide and an elephant comes out onto the road and flips over a tuk-tuk with its tusk and trunk. And our guide who was Buddhist, most people in Sri Lanka are, explained his behaviour as karma. He felt very strongly that the elephant had been waiting for that particular tuk-tuk driver, um, because the tuk-tuk driver would have mistreated him at some point. And I remember thinking, even at that time, this, this is a great lesson for the boys this is wonderful. There'd been a lot of quarrels between Josh and Ben, the two older ones recently, and I'd been having discussions about how important it was to treat other people, treating people how you want to be treated, you know, all those kind of things, big kind of discussions like that. And this happened. And at the time, I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is amazing. They've had this incredible life lesson.
1: Or were there lessons that you think that you learned were most important for you as you traveled with your family?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, all the time. We were all learning. Not just the boys, me as well. Everywhere we went, even even if I didn't feel that they were first time lessons for me, they were reminders for me of maybe things that I'd forgotten were important. Or, you know, for example, we spent time in Prabang in Laos. And, you know, that was a lesson in slowing down and letting go. And the slowing down came at a time when I felt that we were all leading super busy lives and all needed to reconnect in a very unhurried way. I mean, slow travel is all about connecting with the environment and the people that you're travelling in, in an unhurried way. And Laos is the perfect place to practice that. The local people joke that the PDR as in the people's democratic republic of laos stands for please don't rush. <laughs> Everybody is so laid back and gentle, really gentle. And I was trying to get the boys, you know, off their phones more and just a little bit more in the moment, but it wasn't just the boys, it was me too. I felt that I needed that as well. I needed to just spend some time a little off comms, you know, just away from everything. And it and it worked beautifully.
0: One of the things that I really loved about your book, while it's about travel and I'm always interested in books about travel, it was also about you watching your sons grow up and how those developmental milestones were part of the travel experience. And my oldest child just recently turned 18. We haven't experienced it yet because she's still, you know, going on our trip with us. But I know that it's coming where our travels are are just not going to look the same you know, because she's going to get busy with college and and working and and just wanting to sort of explore on her own. So was that a difficult experience for you doing things without one or more of your sons? Yes,
2: and it still is. I mean, the chapter that I've just talked about when we were in Luanne Prabang, uh, you know, it was a lesson in slowing down and I mentioned and letting go. Well, the letting go was about me letting go, really. I've had mums say to me that they found that chapter the most uh, poignant in the book, really, and moving, because I am conscious in that chapter more than any other. I think that the boys are growing up and moving away from us and making their own decisions, becoming their own men. And Josh was 16 in that chapter, just about to be 17. And yeah, I think you know, when we went in Cuba as well, I I cover it quite a lot. You know, I'm already in mourning for that trip, even before we've gone, because I'm telling myself it will be the last really big extended holiday we take as a family of five. I'm already kind of sad (laughs) about the trip. But I'm also, what, what happened during that trip was, I was also very, very appreciative, I think, of every day we had together. I mean, I've always tried to be like that, but I think that trip as well felt very special. It's the natural order of things. I mean, Josh is now 21 and, you know, he's leading his own life. I talked to him uh, earlier. He's off to a festival tomorrow, four-day festival. He's not coming to Costa Rica with us in three weeks' time, but Ben and Freddie are, so the four of us are going. But we will have a holiday with Josh. We are going to Spain all together in August. So, you know, we're, we're a close family, we're always going to get together and do things. But those big, big family trips where we were away for maybe three weeks, sometimes more, you know, I do feel that they have properly passed now and I have to accept that. But that still doesn't mean that I've let go of that maybe we we will do something like that once again. But I also take great pleasure in seeing them going off and leading their own own lives. And uh, especially after the time we've been through, through the pandemic, you know, it's wonderful to see them now enjoying their time with family and friends and girlfriends and just having a having a great time. But yes, it's so difficult. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a crier anyway. I can get quite emotional thinking about the fact that those times are over and the first you know couple of podcasts i did talking about some of the chapters just when the book had been first published um i found myself weeping <laughs> i don't think i'm quite that bad now i've i'm a bit more in control but yes you know very nostalgic about everything Well, it seems like this book
1: is a great way to keep those memories fresh. Have your boys read the book and what do they think of it?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, Ben, who is studying English at university, I sent him the book before I sent the final draft to my publisher because Josh at the time was studying for his finals for engineering. So he was really busy. And so I sent the book to Ben and I said, can you read this and tell me if there's anything in it that you're not happy with? And he came back and said, Oh, mum, it's absolutely amazing. I'm so proud of you. And Freddie and Josh will love it as well. There's nothing in there that you need to take out. I mean, I was mindful of that while I was writing it. You know, if there was something that I thought might at some stage embarrass the boys then I took it out, even if it was very funny, I took it out. No, they love it. They're very proud of me actually. It's been one of the nicest things, you know, they they've really loved the journey I've been on to it's very different to being a journalist, being an author, and this is my first book. So they're very excited for me.
1: I found a lot of your stories amusing as a parent of three children myself, but I'm wondering if there were some some travel moments that were just so awful that you couldn't even begin to write about them, but that you can laugh about them now.
2: I don't think there's anything too awful that I haven't put in the book, to be honest. It's very honest. I mean, I've talked about poo in the pool. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. Uh, not mine, I might add. <laughs> Um, but you know I I think I set out to be really honest and I think I have been I mean I touch upon the time when Neil and I both had the most horrendous food poisoning in Koh Samui in Thailand I, I touch upon that in the epilogue of the book the boys thought it was the greatest day ever I mean we were both <laughs> completely out of it in bed and they were running a mop around the place ordering room service there have been a couple of incidents that haven't been great. With yeah, boys. I mean you're not going to travel with three boys yeah. and not have accidents and, you know, things that go wrong. Ben's been pecked by a Brolger, which is a like a big crane like bird in Australia. I mean that threw <laughs> blood as well. Oh, <laughs> pecked him up just came up and pecked him on the head. But on the whole, I think we've got off pretty lightly really, you know, considering some of the places we've yeah, been to. Absolutely.
0: You know, our middle child, he does not like changes to his routine. So we don't have any horror stories, but I did create a photo album, and we call it Vacations Where Graham Was Unhappy. And so we have collected all the pictures of our middle child frowning, throwing a fit, just being very disgruntled. And we have a lot (laughs) of them. Now, he's 14 now, and he's definitely getting over that. But we have so many pictures of him, and he's just flung himself on the ground. You know, like on a boulder, and he's got his head covered. We have so many pictures like that. You know, when he was unhappy on trips, everybody was unhappy on trips. And we just sort of had to muddle through. Mm -hmm. Now, it's funny, because we look back and seeing all these pictures. I mean, we have one, and we took him to Disney, you know, when he was three, because he loved the movie Cars. And we thought, oh, we'll take him to Disney. And there's a picture of him... And we were waiting in line, I think, for the Buzz Lightyear ride. And the look on his face is just, you know, here, here he is in the, quote, unquote, <laughs> happiest place on earth. And he looks so miserable. And so, oh, you yeah. know, but it's fun now to look back at those pictures. We were not. Oh, I might do in. the same. I love that. <laughs> have a whole photo album Graham unhappy on vacations and that's great I'm gonna do the
2: same I'm gonna do each of mine can have the same (laughs) I love I love the idea of a grumpy photo album yes yeah fantastic we have picture Mm. after
0: picture after picture and now it's you know it's just become this big joke so that's brilliant
1: oh I don't know it was maybe seven or eight years ago, our family went to Colorado to uh, Colorado Springs, which is just right at the base of the Rocky Mountains. And the said child that I'm going to talk about, I'm not going to say who it is. uh, He was probably 15 at the time and, you know, doesn't really want to listen to mom and dad too much. So we were going to take this railroad, I called a cog railway that will take you up to the top of Pike's Peak which is the highest peak in the southern part of the Rocky Mountains. And they warn you before you go that you should bring and drink a lot of water because the elevation will really dehydrate you. And so, of course, you know, what do moms always do before you get on something like that? They tell everybody, go to the bathroom. And they'll say, and, you know, your kids will say, but I don't have to go. And you'll say, try anyway, right? (laughs) The 15-year-old at the time said, no, 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 I don't have to go. I don't have to go. You can't force somebody to go to the bathroom unless they're toddlers. So then he proceeds then to drink two big things of water. And this trip up the railway takes probably an hour to an hour and a half to get all the way to the top. So about halfway through the trip, he starts saying, you know, I I have to go to the bathroom. Well, there's no bathroom on here. Remember us saying, you know, you needed to go to the bathroom down at the bottom and the announcements that they were making on the train that there's no bathroom Hmm. on the train? So we get a little farther and he's like, yeah, I, I I, really need to go to the bathroom. And again, we're like, well, I mean, we've got nowhere for you to go. Just see if you can hold it a little bit longer. And so at some point he says, if I don't go to the bathroom,
2: I'm going to burst. Oh, gosh. Do you know what? I feel for him. I, I am that person. <laughs> Well,
1: so we're sitting on this train and it's, it's open on the sides. So there are no glass in the windows. It's an open air train and our little family all has one bench. And so we have these empty water bottles, right? And so my husband says, okay, well, we're not going to look, but we're kind of like going to lean down around you and you just pee in this bottle. which he does, but at this point he had held it so long. And I don't know if you've ever done this, held it so long that when you actually start going to the bathroom, it kind of hurts because your bladder has cramped up. So it starts to pee. But what happens is then he kind of groans like super loudly because it hurts when it's coming out. And everybody around us, is they know something's going on. They're not sure what it is, but something is going on.
0: Well, now they know. All those people, (laughs) they know
1: now. I'm pretty sure that they knew after too. So he finishes relieving himself in the bottle. And then of course, hands the bottle to my husband. And my husband doesn't want to hold this bottle of pee all the way up to Pike's Peak. And like I said, it's an open air train. He's sitting next to the window. He's just going to reach out and he's just going to pour it out. Oh no. And so (laughs) he does that. And as the train just moves a little bit further and we look out the window, we see that there are construction workers
2: (laughs) working
1: on the side of the tracks, but we couldn't see them because of the, the angle that the train was on. So we're oh, pretty no. sure that those construction workers got doused with a big <laughs> load of urine. Oh dear! <laughs> it's a famous or maybe infamous family story. <laughs> it is so funny. But at the time, we were all in a horrible mood. By the time we got to the top, uh, I speak, and we have the pictures to prove it. There, yeah. Anyway, that's my story. Oh. But I hear that you have another book coming out next year. Can you give us the scoop on that?
2: Yes, I do. I'm on the final edit of it now, actually. I'm eating, sleeping and, you know, it's just all consuming. It's a very difficult period, this, because you're at the point of letting it go, you know, so that the final edit's always difficult because you just keep on thinking, oh, maybe I can make it better. Maybe I should include this. But at some point, you've got to say, okay, this is the end. It's called Mum, Mammon, Muda. So uh, mum, obviously, and mamon, the French for mother, and moeder, which is the Dutch word for mother. And it's a journey of motherhood through 12 cities. It's another travel memoir, but it's much more personal. I wrote the book and then sat back and read it through. And I'd written a book about motherhood that I felt wasn't honest enough. And by that, I mean that... I set out to write another quite breezy travel memoir with amusing stories about what it's like being a mum and, you know, traveling with your kids again. And I felt that if the focus was on motherhood, then I had to be a lot more honest about the times when life had been harder. And by that, I mean postnatal depression after Freddie was born. So I had to dig quite deep to write about that. That was difficult. But now it's done. I feel so proud. It's in there. And it's so important to talk about these things. It's made the book something different. It's different to Shape of a Boy. You know, there's still lots of humour in it. Um, That's what life's like, isn't it? And I think us British people are very good at laughing at ourselves. (laughs) You know, black humour is something that really appeals to us. So even in your darkest times, being able to sort of see the funny side of things is important too. But I don't skirt over how awful that time was. So I've included the the bleak moments of becoming a mum and my journey as a mother through the book.
0: Well, Well, I'm going to check it out for sure. It sounds awesome. Thank you well i think now is a time for us to
1: take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about what we're reading
0: we are back with kate wickers so carrie what have you been reading What I wanted to talk about this week was a book that the title sold me. It's called Lycanthropy and Other Chronic Illnesses by Kristen O'Neill. So I started it on audiobook, but I actually had to switch to reading the actual book version because the book is told, like there's instant messages and texts, and those are at least, Personally, I cannot stand listening to those on audiobook because it'll say the person's name and then what they text and then it'll read the next person's name and what they text and it was driving me nuts. So if that bothers you, you know, if if you have a, a thing with that, then if you're interested in this book, stick with the book, don't do the audiobook. But this is the story of Priya. She's a young medical student who develops Lyme disease and is so sick from it that she has to drop out of school and move back in with her parents, and she feels isolated and pretty despondent about the turn her life has taken. At the beginning of the book, she has an online-only friendship with a woman named Bridget, who also has a chronic condition, and they join an online support group. Eventually, Priya and Brigid meet in person, and Priya learns that Brigid's chronic condition is slightly more unusual than anyone else in the support group realizes. Hers affects her every month during full moons. Yes, Brigid is a werewolf. So as you can imagine, weirdness ensues. So this is both a funny book and a serious one in that it deals with the complications of chronic illnesses, which most people, you know, if you don't have a chronic illness, you may not understand how isolating and debilitating that illness can be. And so some of the people in the support group, uh, there's a woman who has endometriosis. There's another person who has fibromyalgia. So, you know, it it sort of sheds a light on what living with a chronic condition can be like. While reading this book, I learned that there was some scandal in lowercase letters, some scandal over it because it's not an own voices book. And Priya is an Indian American character. However, once I dove into it, I learned that some some of the people who had issues with the book didn't even read it. And so I'm sort of like, well, how can you discount an entire book if you've never read it? I was sold when I, I read the title was lycanthropy, like which is werewolf. I was sold on that. But I think it in a, a humorous way, it touches on a serious topic. So I would recommend it. Well, Kate, what have you been reading?
2: Well, I'm not reading much at the moment because when I'm actually writing my own book, I try not to read anything else for that period because I want it to be my voice and not anybody else's. When you're writing a book, you become so wrapped up in your own writing. And for for me personally, I don't know how other writers work while they're writing, but for me, I have to kind of fully absorb myself in my own writing. But I have a stack of books waiting to be read when I finish that will that will go to Costa Rica with me. And the first book is called The Marmalade Diaries by Ben Aitken. Now, he's a British writer. He writes very interesting books. He's a memoirist. So he wrote, I don't know if you've heard of The Grand Tour. That book was about him going on coach holidays around the UK with senior citizens. (laughs) It's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. And what I love about him is the sort of everyday detail in his books. He's so well observed. You know, not, not a lot happens in his books. But so much does. It's about relationships and how we interact with each other and very gentle humor. I I, I absolutely adore his writing. So The Marmalade Diaries, it's called The True Story of an Odd Couple. And it's about him house sharing with a woman called Winnie, who is an 85 year old widow. Mm -hmm. And he takes a room in her house as a lodger. And then the pandemic starts and they are in lockdown together.
0: Oh.
2: And this is why it's called The Marmalade Diaries. It looks amazing. I've I've read the first couple of chapters when I went away a couple of months ago. And then I've, I kind of stopped there because I want to really do it justice. So that's top of my list. And then the other book I'm going to revisit while I'm away is Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love. Mm. And the reason I'm going to revisit this is because the independent newspaper... Here in the UK, I'm sure you know it, Mm -hmm. uh, listed my book along with Elizabeth Gilbert's as one of the best travel books. And this was just a couple of weeks ago. So there were different categories. Hers was, you know, a sort of classic travel book, and mine came under best family travel memoir. And they chose 12 books and they only put a picture of three of them with the feature. And mine was one of them. And it was next to Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> and actually, for me, that was a real pinch me moment. Oh, you know, yeah. I, I remember reading this book and loving it, but just feeling, wow, look at my books there next to Elizabeth Gilbert's. And I, so I'm going to take that away with me as well and, and reread that. And I think that will be a, a good, inspirational, uplifting, fun read
1: the Elizabeth Gilbert, I read it years ago in my book club, but it is one I'm not a big rereader, but that is one that I think would benefit from a reread at different stages in your life.
2: Yes, uh, be- I agree.
1: Because she's a young woman when, when that book takes place and a lot has happened to her in her life since then. And it would be interesting yeah. to go back and read that one. And the first two that you
0: talked about sound amazing. And I am definitely going to The first book that you mentioned by Ben Aitken, you said it was The Grand Tour? It's called The
2: Grand Tour. So okay. instead of The Grand Tour, okay. as I'm saying, you know, The Grand Tour, it's called The Gran, as in Grandma. Okay. What we'd call our grandmothers, it would be very common to call them Gran. Gotcha. So gotcha. that's a play on... The grand tour.
0: When I was 21, my mom and I went, she wanted to go to New York City, and my dad had no desire to go to New York City. And so we went on a bus tour, and I was by far the youngest person. And my mom is 35 years older than me. And she was the next oldest person. And then everybody else was like in their 70s. You know, as soon as you mentioned that book, I was like, that sounds like something I have to read because Oh, you'll love it. Yeah. You'll absolutely
2: love it. Yeah. His characters are so well observed well they're not characters they're real people <laughs> the way he's, he you know he writes about them and he writes in a very kind fond way about the people he meets you know he doesn't make fun or, you know he's very considered about the way he writes I, I, it, yeah he's a great writer
0: yeah so amy i know you have been working furiously to finish up some books but what are you going to talk about this week <laughs> I finished up one today, just this morning. And as I've talked about
1: recently, my my husband and I took a trip to Italy in mid-May and we explored Florence and Cinque Terre and Rome. And is my habit. I've read several books set in Italy. And this is a book that I came across after we returned from our trip. But the premise sounded so cool to me that I had to read it too. So it's called Da Vinci's Cat by Catherine Gilbert Murdoch. And it's a middle grade time travel adventure. And we have two protagonists. The first is Frederico. And he lives in 1500s Italy and is currently a prisoner of the Pope in Rome. And his father, the Duke of Mantua, is in charge of the Pope's soldiers. And so His Holiness is using Frederico as an insurance policy that the Duke won't turn against him. And then we have B, who lives in modern-day New Jersey, and her moms are art historians. And as they are visiting an elderly neighbor's house, they see this painting hanging on the wall that looks just like B, down to a little mole that she has and a little scar on her cheek. And the neighbor says that her father acquired this painting, which they believe is from the 1500s, from an art dealer back in the 1940s. So what connects these two characters is a cat named Juno. And Juno appears to both of them in their own time periods and leads them to a wardrobe, which is a piece of furniture that is like a closet that you would hold clothes. And inside the wardrobe, if you climb in, it will take you to this portal between these two places. And the wardrobe was designed by Leonardo da Vinci and has some quirky things about it. And it was sent as a gift to the Pope. And Juno has some connection to it. So, B tries to find out why there is a painting of her from the 1500s. And Frederico, or Fred, as B calls him, just wants a friend his age and a cat to call his own. He's lonely being a 12 year old boy at the Pope's residence with no other children his age. But Michelangelo is quite fond of Fred, although he. Michelangelo apparently is also a real grouch to everybody else. So this adventure involves artists and architects like Michelangelo, Raphael and Bramante. But will their adventure lead to the erasure of the Sistine Chapel? So this was a fun book to read that definitely had some of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe vibes and in fact B comments on the fact that this feels like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And it's a fun adventure story featuring two 12-year-olds. Now, I happen to love time travel books, but as is the case with many time travel books, there are things in here that will make your head hurt a little. Things like if you change one thing in history, it's a domino effect that will change 20 more things. And of course, you have to suspend disbelief a bit. But I really enjoyed the story, and I actually learned a lot about Michelangelo and the jealousy competition between all these great Italian artists in the 1500s. Here's one example. example. Example about something that I learned, which is that Michelangelo in the book is described as being exceedingly smelly. And apparently this is true. Personal hygiene was not his strong suit. And so Murdoch did a lot of research for this book about the artist. And the character of Frederico uh, is based on a real person. So it's funny that you should mention Elizabeth Gilbert, Kate, because Catherine Gilbert Murdoch is the sister of Elizabeth Gilbert. Oh, how funny. Uh, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love? And Catherine mm. may not be quite as well known to the wider public as her sister Elizabeth, but she has written many books for YA and middle grade readers. And in fact, her book titled The Book of Boy was a Newberry Honor winner.
0: Oh, interesting. That yeah, interesting.
1: So I would recommend this for middle grade readers and above, but even adults like me. It was a it was a good palate cleanser among some other heavier books that I've been reading.
0: Well, and it mm. sounds like, you know, you have an interest in art as well. Yeah, So I do. If, you, if you have an interest in art, this is a nice it sounds like a nice lighter kind of book for that.
1: And again, the name of the book was Da Vinci's Cat by Catherine Gilbert
0: Murdoch. These are all great reads. I've already added some to my TBR. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Kate's going to answer her three in the third degree.
1: We are back with Kate and we are going to ask her some very probing questions. Number one. Personally, I can't think of a better job than being a travel writer, but if that hadn't worked out for you, what other professions did you consider?
2: Well, I wanted to be an actress when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and I worked for a community drama group and auditioned for drama schools and, yeah, you know, thought that perhaps that would be my calling. But, well, I have to be honest, I don't think I had enough talent, really. So... (laughs) So that didn't work out, (laughs) Uh, probably just as well. Um, I trialled a few other jobs before I settled down, before I went to university and studied media and communications. I had a little stint as a window dresser. Um, I know that sounds good, doesn't it? But it was mainly carrying nude mannequins around. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, it wasn't as exciting as I thought it might be. So that didn't last long. When I first started my degree, I was studying international relations as well as media. And I thought perhaps I'd be the next Kate Aidy. I don't know if that means anything mm-hmm. to you, but she was a war correspondent, oh, very okay. famous war correspondent here. And um, I liked the idea of that. She always looked very glamorous in her khaki trousers and (laughs) shirts and (laughs) but anyway I fell into writing travel because a professor of mine said don't wait until you graduate and start sending your stuff off now and I I had some travel features published so yeah I I mean I've tried a few different jobs I think I'm pretty happy where I am oh yeah I can't imagine doing anything else now
0: (laughs) All right. Question two. So your bio says you're also a food writer. So we've got some quick questions about food. So which do you prefer, appetizers or desserts?
2: Oh, that's so difficult. Oh, I think I'm going to go with appetizer because I'm more of a savory glutton than a sweet glutton. I'd rather have something really delicious to start with. Oh, but it's a tough call, that one.
0: All right. Takeout or restaurant meal?
2: Oh, restaurant every mm-hmm. time.
0: Yeah.
1: There's something All about right. the ambiance of a restaurant. Plus, I got really sick of takeout during COVID. And- Absolutely. <laughs> and, and what you find is that, or what I found was that even if it's from my favorite restaurant, getting it takeout, it just never tasted as good. And I think it's because there's something about the ambiance of the restaurant and being there and being out that makes the food taste better.
2: That's Absolutely. And being with other people, especially now, and hearing just that buzz of chatter and, you know, laughter and people enjoying themselves. And it's the whole experience, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah
0: I choose to
2: dine out every time.
0: <laughs> All right. The next quick food question. So, I had to ask this because when I was 19, I traveled in. England, Ireland, and Wales for about 10 weeks. And when we were in Oxford, the place where we stayed, the gentleman who fixed us breakfast would ask every morning beans or tomatoes for breakfast, right. which completely <laughs> blew my mind because I couldn't imagine eating either one for breakfast. So I have to ask you beans or tomatoes for breakfast? Well, when
2: you say beans, you're talking about Heinz baked beans, aren't you? So beans in a rich tomato sauce. So they're both tomato <laughs> But, oh, that again is so difficult. I mean, <laughs> you would not have an English proper breakfast and not have both. Right. So I'm going to say both. Oh, Sorry. Okay.
0: Both. And then wine or beer?
2: Wine. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> definitely. Yes, I'm definitely a wine Carrot Well, you like wine too, Carrie, but you like I beer. Like-
0: I can't stand
1: beer. So I'm never, <laughs> ever, ever going to oh, pick beer.
2: Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not fussy. I won't turn my nose up. You know, I'm not. I'm not fussy when it comes to alcohol. I'll have a beer too. But wine would be my preference, definitely. Okay.
1: All right. So, question number three. I think that we might have hit on a on a landmine with this one. So many Americans are a bit fascinated by the British royal family because we don't have anything like that. And so I was wondering, is this something that is important to you or something you care a little about? And then before we started recording, you
2: informed me that you live in Windsor, which is where I think where the Queen lives. That's where the Queen lives. (laughs) Well, we've just had the Jubilee, of course. So I I don't just live in Windsor. I live within like two minutes walk from the castle. And so when Harry and Meghan got married, you probably saw the procession through Windsor. Yeah. So it went right past my house. We were all out on the balcony waving at them. She looked up, all the kids were on our roof and she looked up and waved at them all. I've got the most amazing photographs actually of that day. It was an incredible day. I mean, it all went absolutely terribly wrong afterwards but uh (laughs) you know we won't talk about that that day was a good day so is the royal family important to me I would say oh it's a difficult one because I have huge respect for the queen Uh, she's done an amazing job for everybody and I feel that you couldn't say anything really negative about her the others so When I'm walking my dog Bertie on the long walk, which is the two mile green park that leads to a sculpture of of George on the hill, but I walk him out there daily. And Prince Andrew regularly passes me in his Range Rover. And I cannot stand that man for obvious reasons. I couldn't stand him before. But you know, with come to light recently, he's liked even less here. I don't know one person in the UK that would give him the time of day. I could do without a lot of the other minor royals that you know tag along on the Queen's expensive coattails. So yeah, I'd get rid of a lot of those. I'm not sure about Charles and Camilla how well received they will be in time. I wouldn't say they're that. Uh, that popular. I'm giving you a kind of British date okay. on the whole royal family. I'm not sure if you wanted this no, or not. No, but... that's
1: okay. I, what um, this question actually was, I heard. A, <laughs> I heard an interview. There was a, a journalist from our national public radio station who had gone there for the jubilee and was sort of just talking to you know people on the street. Yeah. About their thoughts about the royal family, which is what made me ask this question mm. because I was just curious. Mm.
2: What so, so I think Kate and William are well received, and people like them. They're, they, you know, they're quite a popular couple. So I think probably, you know, we should just kind of get rid of everybody else. I don't mean get rid of what, as in kind of cut their heads off or anything. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know about all these royals that have these minor roles and still are on the roll pay that taxpayers are uh, paying for. I could really do without all those. I don't know how the monarchy will now pan out in the future. But living in Windsor, you're so much part, that's so much part of the town. I mean, you know, you get used to seeing them. Mm. I've regularly seen the Queen over the years. She used to drive herself to um, chapel in the Great Park on a Sunday. So quite often we'd be out there when the boys were little. She doesn't anymore. She hasn't done for a while, but she would often pass us uh in her car and we'd give her a wave. So I'm probably in a in a kind of strange situation here where we're a bit more used to seeing them. I love all the kind of history and yeah. the um pomp and ceremony. It's all lovely to see, but I'm not so keen on not the immediate the immediate royal family's okay, but all the others I think could could do with going away now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I didn't pay any attention, uh, really, to Jubilee except for Prince Louis because, or Louis, I guess, Louis, uh, yeah, because of all the faces, the faces, he was making. yeah, and and here's the mm. thing: I am not a peoply person, so I really felt, <laughs> I felt those faces in my soul. I was like, I, I'm with you, Louis. This this would drag on way, way too long for my personal taste. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, right. you know, we don't want to see impeccably behaved little kids. We You want to see that they're normal little kids, you know, having a bit of fun. And I think William and Kate encourage that. I don't think they're stuffy. I think they're more in touch and they're just a modern couple, really. And I think, you know, that's why people warm to them a bit more. My son, Ben, however, the middle one, would say that we need to get rid of the monarchy. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, everybody's got different opinions. Yeah.
0: Well, Kate, it has been so great chatting with you. Thank you so much for making time. You know, I think you're five or six hours ahead of us. So we appreciate you uh, making time for us to chat about your book. It's been a real pleasure.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. i have loved talking to you.
0: You can
1: find Kate Wickers on Instagram at wickers.kate and at her website, katewickers.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify finally a huge thank you to forward radio 106.5 fm a grassroots community radio station in louisville kentucky you can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org